Will the congregation please open with me in the Word of God to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. Continuing on in our exposition of the Gospel of Mark, we'll be looking at verses 14 through 29. The title of the sermon is Weak Faith Sustained. Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. Please join with me in prayer once again. Lord God Almighty, we come before Thee. We thank Thee for the singing of psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Mm. We thank Thee for the hearing of Thy word read publicly. We pray, God, that these would be mixed with faith in us, faith which thou givest to us. They would benefit our souls greatly, Lord, that we would go on to live for thee, to love Christ more. Lord, we ask for thy help now as we come to hear the word preached. Pray, God, that this work, this weak, stammering preacher would be helped to accurately and faithfully preach thy word. And for all of us, that our ears, our eyes, our minds would be opened, illuminated by thy work, Holy Spirit, to understand thy word that would be applied to our hearts, applied to our minds. Lord, that this would flow through our hands and our feet in our daily lives. Ultimately, Lord Jesus, that thou wouldst be magnified in the preaching and hearing of thy word. We pray these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. Hear now the word of the Lord. This is right after the transfiguration. Verse 14. And when he, that is Jesus, came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them and the scribes questioning with them. And straightway all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed and running to him, saluted him, and has greeted him. And he asked the scribes, What question ye with them? And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. And wheresoever he taketh him, he, ta- he teareth him, and he foameth and gnasheth with his teeth, and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. He answereth him and saith, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. And they brought him unto him. And when he saw him, straightway the spirit tear him. And he fell on the ground and wallowed foaming. And he asked his father, How long is it ago since this came unto him? And he said, Of a child. And oft times it hath cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything... Have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said unto him, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him and enter no more into him. And the spirit cried and rent him sore, And came out of him, and he was as one dead, insomuch that many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. 
When he was coming to the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could not we cast him out? And he said unto them, This kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it. Dear congregation, in this life, faith, our faith, Christian faith, is always on trial, is it not? So Christians, we should not think it strange that our threefold enemy, that is, the world, the unbelieving world, Satan, and our own inward sinful nature assaults us at every turn. In fact, the Apostle Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. In those moments, dear congregation, of faith's strongest motions, when faith seems the strongest, both scripture and experience teach us that spiritual trial often shortly follows such motions of spiritual strength in the life of a Christian. Here, in our passage, dear congregation, we see this very pattern proved. Descending the Mount of Transfiguration, we are brought to a sad scene of doubt, worldly and vain curiosity, the vile work of the devil, and personal tragedy. The shadow of this fallen, evil world is cast upon the brilliance of that vision of the future glory Christ shall have, which we saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. Upon the declaration which is what occurred at the Mount of Transfiguration, that Jesus is the Christ, the beloved Son of God Almighty, the fulfillment of all the scriptures, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, we then now see a picture of darkness at work. From a vision of glory to a conflict with Satan, from the blessed company of Moses and Elijah with Christ to the unhappy fellowship of the hostile scribes, from a foretaste of the future glory, future reign, which Christ shall have at that final day, now only to return once more to a scene of pain, weakness, and misery. A boy in agony of body, possessed with a vexing devil. A father in deep distress. And a little band of Christ's feeble disciples, baffled, by Satan's power, mocked by the scribes, and unable to give any relief. This is not unlike the life of Elijah himself, whom we have just heard so much about. At Mount Carmel, remember, he was bold in faith, seeing the glory of Jehovah God go forth, declaring that he is the only God. There is no other God. And then he came down the mount and was assaulted with satanic doubt and despair. The contrast between the passage which we are in today, dear congregation, and that which came before it is truly striking. And surely we can all relate to something of its weight. Yet as drastic, as drastic and shocking as this contrast may be, dear congregation, it is but a faint reflection of the change of scene which the Lord Jesus Christ voluntarily undertook to witness himself. Namely, when he, the eternal Son of God, the second person of the triune God, first laid aside his glory and came into the world 
As we see in John 1.14, that the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And Paul in Philippians saying that Jesus, being in the form of God, someone who could think it not robbery to be equal with God, made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. This is also a vivid picture, isn't it? Of the life of every true Christian. With them, just as with their master, work, conflict, and scenes of weakness and sorrow will always be the rule for the Christian. With them too, visions of glory, foretastes of heaven itself, seasons on the mount, if you will, will always be the exception. As Paul says in Philippians 1.29, For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. Faith, dear congregation, always has her crosses. Faith always has her crosses. In our text, let us make three considerations concerning faith. First, we'll look at faith's battle. Faith's battle. Secondly, faith's source. Faith's source. And thirdly, faith's duty. Faith's duty. Faith's battle, faith's source, and faith's duty. First, faith's battle. Here we have Jesus descends the mount of transfiguration with Peter, James, and John. And he was returning unto the other nine disciples. When they get there, they find a great multitude. And there were scribes there questioning, interrogating the disciples. There's been some sort of an event. A crowd is gathered. And the crowd has, is agitated. Straightway, we read, all the people come running to Jesus and they greet him. And while Jesus and the other three disciples were away, a father had brought his child to the nine disciples in order to be healed of this devil, this demon. But things had not gone as everyone thought they would or thought they should. The people are confused. They're disappointed. They're agitated. Rather than seeing a miracle, which is what they hope to see, as we see so often in the Gospels, these massive crowds of people coming out just curious, rubberneckers coming out just to see a miracle. Rather than seeing a miracle, they saw failure. They saw inability, didn't they? The scribes jump on this opportunity to grill the disciples with accusatory questions, while the father remains in despair. It's a sad scene. We can hear the scribes' questions. Ah, are you guys not the disciples of this Jesus of Nazareth, a man thought to be a prophet? Maybe they ask something like, were you not, not only a short time ago, able to do many miracles and cast out many devils with no problem, as we saw when they were sent forth? How is it that now you're unable to cast out this demon? Is it that your power is gone? Is it that Jesus' power has diminished? Were any of these supposed miracles which you have done or Jesus has done even real? Is this not all evidence, you disciples of Jesus, that Jesus is not who he says he is? Maybe something like that. Either way, here are the poor disciples, surrounded 
by people of the world interested only in seeing some miracle to receive something at their hands who now stand around them in judgment. Here they stand, now under the assaulting scrutiny of the faithless scribes. See them here, dear congregation, powerless against Satan. This is the scene that Jesus finds when he returns from a glorious demonstration of his true glory. Immediately he goes to work, though. In verse 16, we see that he asked the scribes, What question ye with them? You see, they assumed that they were the questioners. They were the interrogators. But Jesus puts them upon interrogation, doesn't he? Mm. The enemies of Christ and his people think that they shall be our judges. How many times have we heard people in the world say this? When I get to heaven, when I die, I'm going to give God a thing or two. I'm going to tell him what's on my mind. People think that they shall be the judge of God and how he's governed the world. They think they shall be the judge of Christians, God's people. But they shall be put on trial by Christ himself, as we saw in our confession reading. The scribes appear to be dumbfounded by how the tables have turned so quickly on them. And it's not they who answer, but the poor, sorrowing father who had brought his afflicted son to the disciples. In verses 17 18, we see him say this, Master, he says to Jesus, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit, one that's unable to speak. And I spake to thy disciples, and they could not cast him out. That they should cast him out, but they could not. He originally came to find Jesus, didn't he? But... Jesus being absent up on the mount with the three others, the father then went to the nine disciples, hoping that they could solve his case. Now this whole scene grieves Jesus, grieves him. It's too much. Upon the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus had just enjoyed a foretaste of the glory that he shall have on the last day, a delightful reminder of the glory which he had in time past, in eternity past, with the father. Then, After enduring the misunderstandings of Peter, James, and John, as we saw, they didn't understand the resurrection. They didn't understand why Jesus should have to die if he's the Christ. After having to endure that conversation and the other one that's not recorded by Mark, wherein after seeing Christ's glory in the transfiguration, they thought the natural application of seeing Jesus' glory and the Father speaking from the cloud which overshadowed them, saying, This is my beloved Son, hear ye him. They thought the natural application of that was to argue amongst the three of them about which one should be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Mm. Makes sense. After all this, Jesus now comes into this desperate scene. The disciples were so spiritually weak that they were now unable to cast out a devil, which they had had no problem doing before. The wicked scribes, rather than themselves caring for the afflicted child and the father, saw this as a wonderful opportunity to attack Jesus and his disciples. The father, rather than waiting for Jesus to arrive, brought his son to the disciples instead. What an overwhelmingly unpleasant scene for the eternal Son of God. And that's putting it lightly. Jesus cries out in verse 19, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. 
How illustrative of what Jesus said elsewhere, specifically in Luke 18, verse 8. When the Son of Man cometh, Jesus said, will he find faith upon the earth? Dear congregation, like the generation here in our passage, like the generation here in our passage, we too dwell in the midst of a faithless and wicked generation, don't we? Not only around us, but also within us. We find faithlessness and wickedness. In this life, faith is constantly engaged in battle, dear congregation. Concerning this battle, in light of our passage, let us notice a couple of things. First, our faith is always engaged in battle with our threefold enemy, namely the unbelieving world, Satan, and our own sinful nature. All three of these elements are found in our passage. The multitude gawking at the situation. Satan possessing the child and overpowering disciples. And the disciples' own faithlessness. Dear believers, as inhabitants of this life, we should not expect any different, should we? Do we foolishly think our faith will not be assaulted if we are Christians? Do we think Paul was in jest when he commanded us to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might and to fight the good fight of faith and lay hold on eternal life? Was Paul, just kidding, kind of speaking hyperbolically? I'm often amazed at myself when I'm discouraged by the state of things in this country and in this world. It's okay to be angry, righteously angry. We have to keep that in check with God's word. It's okay to be disappointed and saddened by the wickedness we see, but to be discouraged. How dare I? How dare I? Do we consider the world our friend and ignore John's exhortation? Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Does not Paul tell us to walk in the spirit rather than the flesh and to mortify our flesh? Do we think little of what James and Peter say to resist the devil? If these imperatives are in our Bibles, let us not think them as optional or as exceptions to the rule. Of course, we're going to be attacked by our threefold enemy. We have a bloody warfare before us, dear Christians. Let us not consider it strange that the faithless and wicked age we live in fights against us. Let let us not consider it strange when fiery trials are upon us. Secondly, let us also see that our faith must be engaged in holy warfare for the good of others and not just for ourselves. No doubt, the disciples wished to help the Father, but their faith failed. They relied on themselves rather than Christ for power. This poor father was engaged in warfare for his son, though, wasn't he? Dear congregation, let us learn by his example. Satan, we know, early employs himself for the souls of men, doesn't he? He doesn't wait around. From the earliest years of life, Satan sets about to instill principles of wickedness and faithlessness in men's hearts. Now, shall we be complacent and unmotivated to bring good while Satan is so diligent in bringing about evil? Like this father, let us pray for our children. Let's pray for our children. It is never too early to begin pleading God's mercy for our sons and our daughters. 
dear congregation. So those of you who don't have children, don't tune out. Mixed with godly example and instruction, we have no reason to hope anything other than they shall be Christ's. We labor for that goal. We pray for that goal. We hope and trust in Christ for that goal. Even for those of us who are not yet mothers or fathers, you may yet pray for your children, should God grant them. Even those who are single can pray. Lord God, if thou shouldest will it, if I shall be given a spouse at thy hand, and we are given children of thee, O God, then have mercy upon those children for Christ's sake. Be pleased to give them not only to my future spouse and I, but Lord, give them to thy son. We can pray that. We can pray that. Not only physical children may be prayed for, but also spiritual as well. Paul had many spiritual sons, did he not? Many spiritual children. Those who he had preached the gospel to and nurtured like a father and like a mother, he says, in discipleship. We must bring those who are babes in Christ to the throne of mercy in our prayers daily, dear congregation. Now, do you pray for your own children if you have them? Do you pray for your potential children that you might have? The children around you in your local church? Your spiritual children that you've discipled and the church's spiritual sons and daughters. Do you pray for them, dear Christian? Well, let this sad case of this father spur you on to prayer. Third, faith's battle obtains victory only in one way. Faith in Christ, which brings us to our second point. Second, faith's source or origin, namely God alone. We see this in verses 20 through 27. I'll read them again, starting in verse 20. And they brought him unto him, that is the child, unto Jesus. And when he saw him, straightway the spirit tear him. And he fell on the ground and wallowed foaming. And he asked his father, how long is it ago since this came unto him? And he said, of a child. And oft times it hath cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said unto him, the father, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him, and enter no more into him. And the spirit cried and rent him sore, and came out of him. And he was as one dead, insomuch that many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Dear congregation, our threefold enemy is fierce and mighty. We cannot resist the world. We cannot resist Satan or our sinful nature on our own, in whole or in part. We must understand that. Faith's every victory is Christ's victory. Every victory of faith is a victory of Christ. The Apostle John does not only tell us that this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith, but he also tells us what the object of that faith is. He that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God is he that overcometh the world. 1 John 5, 4 and 5. And let me be clear here. Faith itself does nothing. Faith itself does nothing, dear congregation. It is the object of faith that counts. The object 
We see that there was a measure of faith in the disciples, for they tried to cast out the devil from the child, but they were unable because their faith was not set upon the right source. The father had a measure of faith too, but as we see from our passage, it was mixed with unbelief. And it first rested in the disciples rather than in Christ. But what does our Lord Jesus say here? In verse 19, he says, Bring the child unto me. Unto me. Let us notice, dear congregation, that faith only has one source. God. Faith only has one source. Namely, God. When we discuss faith, when we discuss faith, we must realize that faith itself is a gift. It is a grace of God. In our passage, we see that the entire problem of this situation was faithlessness and unbelief. Whether it was in the crowd who wished simply to see a miracle, whether it was the scribes who rejected Christ, had no faith, the disciples who were unable to cast out the demon, or the poor father. The entire problem here is faithlessness and unbelief. But we must remember, unbelief is not, as so many assume and state, a weakness. Weak faith is not simply an inherent weakness. No. It is a sin. And a grievous one at that, dear congregation. William Jenkin, the Puritan, said, Unbelief is the shield of every sin. That is doubt. Supposed doubt is often the sinner's feigned excuse for continuing in sin. Charles Hodge the great Princetonian theologian said, quote, Not to have faith in God is the highest offense which a creature can commit against its creator. But since this sin is so common, it is therefore commonly discarded. End quote. People think that unbelief, doubt, simply a weakness and easily excused. But John Calvin called unbelief the fountain of all evils. The reason unbelief is so easily excused and not seen as the grievous sin that it is, dear congregation, is because people so often think it is something, it being faith, is something that man can possess, grow, or exercise on his own. That's why people think not having faith, a lack of faith, or a weak faith, unbelief, is no big deal. It's just a weakness. Because they think that faith is something innate to man. Something man can possess and have and grow. People can talk themselves into being brave, can't they? Mm. You go to a theme park, you see people having to talk themselves into being brave to go on the medium-sized roller coaster, like myself. You see people having to talk themselves into being happy or calm. Mm. But faith isn't like any of these things, dear congregation. It is not something man makes within himself which, after working himself up into some emotional state, can have more of. No. Paul tells us that all of salvation, the faith through which, is a, the faith through which it is obtained included, is the gift of God. All of salvation is the gift of God. Faith is, as we read earlier in Philippians 1.29, given to us in the behalf of Christ, Paul says. Now, this is the paradox of faith. Dear congregation, and I don't intend to solve it now, but this is the paradox of faith. That though man is commanded to have faith in his creator and faith in Christ, yet man cannot have faith 
without asking for it. And he cannot ask for faith without faith. But the father was brought supernaturally and sovereignly to do this very thing. Jesus, having pointed out his lack of faith, through streaming tears, the father cries out, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. It is true all throughout the Gospels that we often see Jesus telling his disciples to have faith or reprimanding them, rebuking them for their lack of faith. And it's no less right, no less true that we should remind ourselves and others in difficult times that we just need to have faith. The problem occurs when it is thought that just have faith or having faith has anything to do with us. That's where the problem occurs. Faith is always outward-looking, never inward-looking. Faith always looks outward. When we, dear congregation, begin to look to ourselves in any regard, we can be sure that we have wandered off faith's path whenever we begin to look at self. Like his father, like this father here before us in our passage, in seasons of hardship, spiritual depression, and doubt, We must not look to ourselves for the source of faith, but to Christ. We don't look inwardly and say, there's something wrong with my faith. I don't have enough faith. I need to tweak some things, adjust some things, get out a spiritual tool belt, and work on this. That's not how it works. We look to Christ instead. And if we are truly Christian, we can rejoice and have peace that we do have some true measure of faith. But this faith is always, even in the best of Christians that have ever lived, even in every George Whitfield that we've ever seen, faith is always mixed with unbelief in this life and the Christian. We believe, but we believe imperfectly. Thus, we must plead not only the promises of God and his word, but also for the faith to believe those promises that we plead. Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief, is a prayer of faith. A true faith. The measure of faith we have been granted, dear congregation, has nothing to do with us. Nothing to do with us. The measure of faith which we have been granted. For we are not faith's origin or source. Therefore, dear Christians, we must season all of our prayers with, Lord, I believe, Help thou mine unbelief. For example, you could be praying and say, Oh Lord, I believe thy promises that thou wilt meet all of my needs, all of my necessities. Therefore, help thou mine unbelief. I cannot be faithful. Thou must make me faithful. Secondly, let us notice, faith must have its proper object, namely Christ. Now this point is so connected with the prior that they are almost the same point. Faith is not anything because of what it is in itself or because of the subject in whom it dwells. Faith is only powerful because of the object that it lays hold of, namely Christ. Christ. Faith not only lays hold of all the promises in God's word, but chiefly the author of those promises of whom they testify, Jesus The Christ. Our faith is not even in the Bible. Don't put your faith in the Bible. Our faith is in the God of the Bible. 
We are not justified, dear Christian, by faith as the Papists and Arminians maintain because of anything that faith is in and of itself. Faith justifies because of what, or rather who, it apprehends. Namely, Jesus, the righteous. That's how faith justifies. Because of what it lays hold of. Jesus. How often do people think something like this? I trust that my faith is sufficient. My faith is doing well. I've seen many good fruits from my faith lately. My faith is strong, and I I know that my faith is strong. I know that my faith is doing well. My spiritual life is good because of how diligent I've been in Bible reading and in prayer and loving my spouse, attending church, and reading good books. But how wrong is that? How wrong this is? How sinful? How treacherous is such thinking, dear congregation? Faith does not save us, dear congregation. Faith does not justify us. Rather, God graciously justifies us through faith in the person and work of Christ, which is only the instrument, the hand, as it were, which lays hold of him. That was what the Reformation was about. Not that faith itself does anything. It's what faith lays hold of. It's Christ. Our faith must not be faith in our faith, but in Christ. As Daniel Caudre, the Puritan, writes, quote, The sacrifice of Christ saveth not without faith, nor doth faith help unless it be in Christ its object. End quote. This is why, dear congregation, even small, weak faith, like that of a mustard seed, or like the faith we see here in the Father in our passage had, which, which he had, can justify. This is why weak and small faith can justify, because How weak soever it is in itself, it nevertheless lays hold of the strong one, Jesus. Let us not say to ourselves, I trust that my faith is strong. But rather, let us say, I trust that the one I have placed my faith in is strong. George Downame, another Puritan, said that a weak and crippled hand if it can still reach up and place food in the mouth, does its duty of providing nourishment for the body just as well as some strong hand would. Because it is not the strength of the hand, but the goodness of the food that nourisheth the body. We often fail, dear congregation, in our Christian duties, getting a few weeks into some new spiritual habit, having a few months of seeming mastery over some sin, only to fall backwards in defeat. Why? This is not because the faith in and of itself was bad. It's not because our faith in and of itself was bad. It's because the object of our faith was bad. It was in something other than Christ, or at least became something other than him. Thus, when we see ourselves having some spiritual success, and we notice that we are looking to how well we're doing, Let us turn to prayer and say, Lord, I believe. I have seen thee supporting me and working good in and through me. But, O Lord, help thou mine unbelief. For I am so quick to take my eyes off of thee, who art doing the work, and unto myself and my faith. Notice, dear congregation, the Father's faith, though true, was weak. It was partially in man's abilities and partially in Christ's. He said, 
This is the father. He said, if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. But Jesus, as always, especially towards poor sinners in a horrible state like this, offers the corrective. The issue was not Christ's ability to do anything. That's where he was mistaken. But in the man's ability to place his faith in Jesus, that was the issue. And Jesus responds to his, if thou canst do anything, with, if thou canst believe. If thou canst believe. At these words, true faith is worked within the Father. And he says, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. There was no more if thou canst prayers, were there? Only a confident appeal, Lord, help me. Help thou me. Like the leper in chapter 1, who in faith prayed, thou canst make me clean. We see the Father now turn to simply declaring what Christ can do. True faith in the true object, namely Christ, dear congregation, never prays ifs when it's praying the promises of Christ. So, dear doubting, stumbling, weak Christian, look no more to your faith. Look no more to your faith. Concern yourself with it, not at all. Rather, Look to the object of your faith, Jesus Christ. He is able and willing. Do not pray if thou canst any longer, but rather, in accordance to the promises of Scripture, pray, thou art able, help me. The object of your faith is what counts, dear congregation. Now, did your faith itself save you? Did you contribute to your salvation? Or was it the object of your faith that saved you, namely Jesus Christ? Okay, if it was Jesus Christ and you didn't add to your salvation, you didn't help, then shall you contribute anything else to your sanctification? John Flavel said this, quote, All other graces, like birds in the nest, depend upon what faith brings into them. End quote. Now, this is not because of faith itself, again, but because of who faith apprehends. Christ, who is the author and sustainer of our entire Christian life, dear congregation. Faith is humble because it trusts not in self, but in Christ. It does not take up the work itself, but waits upon God to accomplish the work. The father, after his faith is corrected and placed upon the proper object, is silent, the rest of our passage. And he waits to see what Christ will do. Christ heals his son. Faith did not heal the son. Christ healed the son. There's a lot more in there, but briefly we have to get to our next point. Last point. Third, faith's duty, which is to increase. Verses 28 and 29. And when he was coming to the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could not we cast him out? And he said unto them, This kind can come forth by nothing by prayer and fasting. Now, there's so much debate, dear congregation, as to what this means. This kind can come out not by prayer and fasting. That there's certain demons that you cast out and certain spiritual duties that can only be obtained by prayer and fasting. There's a lot of debate here. But I don't think Christ's answer is so confusing as many assume. I think what he's saying is that, in other words, demons cannot be cast out by anything but faith in myself, in Jesus Christ, which when active looks like 
a life of observance upon the means of grace. Prayer, fasting, the reading of the word, observing the Lord's day and keeping the Sabbath, gathering with the saints, partaking in the sacraments, hearing sermons, and the performance of all other religious duties and works is what faith looks like outwardly. It's what faith looks like outwardly. It's what faith does. Good Christian duties are not faith itself. They are what faith does. Faith is the sovereign gift of God's grace alone, isn't it? But faith brings with it certain duties. Whether it is the casting out of a demon or the turning of the other cheek and loving of our enemies. No matter how big or small the Christian duty, any of these Christian duties can only be rightly accomplished by or through faith in Jesus Christ. Faith is nourished, increased, and exercised by fulfilling religious duties, especially attendance upon the means of grace. Dear congregation, while, while failure in our Christian life is not because faith itself is weak, necessarily, since we saw that even weak faith, apprehending the proper object, Jesus, is sufficient for all Christian duties, still it is true that only a faith constantly nourished upon the Lord Jesus Christ can make any progress in true religion. Paul, when instructing the Colossian church on how they must fulfill their Christian duties, tells them to seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above, not on things on earth, for ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ and God. Colossians 3, verses 1 through 3. Dear believers, in closing, the way our minds and the way our affections are taken off of this world and put upon Christ is through the means of grace, namely prayer, fasting, Bible reading, church attendance, the Lord's Supper. So in these duties, which are to serve to increase our faith and can only be accomplished by faith, do you labor by yourself? Are you laboring by yourself? Do you take seriously the means of grace? Do you nourish your soul upon Christ? Or do you neglect your faith? Let us believe. Let us believe. Dear congregation, let us pray, Lord, we believe. Help thou our unbelief. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before thee, O God. We thank thee for thy grace and thy mercy. We thank thee for thy word. We pray, God, Thou wouldst turn all of our faith that it might face Thee alone. Help us to look not to faith itself, but to Thee. Help us to trust in Thee, Lord God. Holy Spirit, grant us faith. We believe as Christians. Help Thou our unbelief. Let us be diligent in pursuing thee in the means of grace. I pray, God, the Lord's Supper, thy Supper, would be a feast to our souls. 
being mixed with the preaching and hearing of the word would greatly aid us and strengthen us that we might go forth with conviction and confidence to live for thee. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.